I would rather stand out for the right reason than blend in for the wrong reason. That's a great line right there, isn't it? And then he says, and you, my king, are the best reason there is, now and forever. That really sums up what we're talking about this week. Have you ever seen a jellyfish in the ocean? They just go with the tide. They just go with the flow. And then you see dolphins, and they can fly right over the waves as they're coming in, going in the opposite direction. We need a whole lot more Christian dolphins than Christian jellyfish. We can so easily just go with the tide because it feels easier. But it's so important to realize that when you just go with the flow, when the flow is coming from worldly values and priorities, it ends up wearing you out and not fulfilling you the way you think it will. And so we've got to continue to take this ride with Daniel and his friends in Babylon to understand what God has for us in himself most of all. So please again open your Bibles if you have one. I'm in the ESV, Daniel chapter 1 again. We're going to look at the last 18 verses of this chapter. This morning we looked at the first two, and now we'll look at the rest of the verses in this chapter and see the challenge of living faithfully in Babylon in a foreign land. Here we go. Lord, help us now as we go to your word to hear from you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Daniel chapter 1, verse 3. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace. If you want to take over a culture, you go after the leaders in the culture. You go after the educated, the ones who are leaders in business, in the arts, the influencers, right? That's who you go after, and that is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar is brilliantly doing. He's going after these key people, and he exports them from Israel and into Babylon to enculturate them, to indoctrinate them into the ways of Babylon. And so he brings these excellent leaders. Did any of you see you yourselves in that description that I just read of those leaders? Maybe you're a little arrogant if you do, but maybe you're just being honest. Some of you are achievers. Some of you are A-type driven folks who are at the front of the line and hate group work in school because you end up always doing all the work. No slackers, you have to pick it up. Now, you may learn to delegate a little bit better than you do, give somebody else a chance to do that, but he's going after leaders here. And Daniel and his three friends are among these leaders. And watch how he seeks to indoctrinate, inculcate, enculturate them into Babylon. What does he do? 
He seeks to teach them. Look at verse 4. Use without blemish of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge and understanding and learning, competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. That's huge. And apparently, they learned the language and literature of the Chaldeans. They, they learned these ways. But as we'll see, they did it with discernment. They did it with a critical eye and mind, understanding the ways of the culture in which they now live, but at the same time, staying true to the truths of God, to the ways of God. And that's a challenge. And that's really the wisdom we desperately need. They learn these ways. And if Nebuchadnezzar, if the Babylonians are trying to bring these leaders of Israel into Babylonian culture and indoctrinate them, you're going to have them immersed in the literature of the culture. You're going to have them read and learn and study. Please realize how influential what you read and listen to and study and learn. And it's not just books. It's music. Lyrics you hear over and over again have a profound influence on you in some ways more than even what you read because there's something about music that teaches you more deeply than just the intellect. The constant barrage of messages you get from social media. The constant barrage you get from, from commercials trying to get you to buy things and get you to be dissatisfied with what you currently have. That's so much of marketing, convincing people that they need things that they don't really need. And so we're influenced constantly, we're bombarded constantly in this culture, and that's what they're trying to do, influence them with the main influences of Babylonian culture. Verse 5, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were educated, they were to be educated for three years. So he brings the best of the best and he educates them and enculturates them and feeds them and they are adapting a lot of these things and apparently they're finding no problem with so much of this. And, and we need to realize that when we're in a culture, everything isn't bad. There's goodness all around. The Bible says that God gives us everything to enjoy. So just, so, just because you're in a different culture doesn't mean that it's all bad. Now, I, I appreciate the imagery of the trash that's just washing up that they value in the video, but the, the nuance of that is that goodness is everywhere. God created everything, and, and God gives it to us to enjoy, and it images him and glorifies him. The reason it ends up being trash, which is why this is a helpful illustration, is because when it's motivated by self, when it doesn't glorify God, when it's disconnected from the creator, it ends up as just trash, wood, hay, and stubble. Things without any lasting value. Things that lead to emptiness and judgment. You know, the Bible makes stark claims. It says things like, the idols of the nations are worthless doesn't mean there isn't beauty in an idol in some ways when it's made of precious metals or gems. Well, there, there's beauty there. It can't help but have beauty because God made it. But if it's devoted 
to self and to false gods in worship that isn't worship the one true God, it ends up being a worthless folly to invest your life into. And so we've got to realize the difference between things that have a goodness in themselves, but they're for self and not for the glory of God and for the good of others. So they're seeking to educate them and feed them the food and get them part of the culture. Now, I want you to realize that these guys that are heroes in this story are teenagers. They're your age. They're your age. I wonder how you do. 14, 15, 16, 17 years old, taken from your home, from your families, from everything you knew that was familiar, and you're brought into a foreign land. And they're seeking to turn you into Babylonians rather than who you have always been and are committed to being. How would you do? Oh, it would be so tempting, wouldn't it, to be like Judith in the video? Who's just saying, look, it's dangerous to defy what they call us to. Let's just blend in. Let's just go with the flow. Let's just be jellyfish. And yet we need to be dolphins. And then they give them new names. These were the, uh, uh, among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They're Hebrew names of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them new names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. What you need to know is those Hebrew names are all God-focused, God-honoring names. Yahweh the God of the people of God of Israel. And all those new names were very theological. They they were very worship-oriented. They affirm four different Babylonian gods in the names that they have. They, They just changed their names from the true God and worshiping him to these false gods. So even their names have been changed now in what they're referred to. I have no doubt they continue to refer to one another by their God-honoring Hebrew names. But, but now, in the culture, they were called these other names. Verse 8. But Daniel, here's the huge verse, resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Now, we're not sure why exactly this is where Daniel drew the line. It seems that among his friends, among the other leaders, he stepped forward and said, all right, we'll read this literature, we'll understand the ways of Babylon, we'll learn the language, we'll become part of the culture, we'll cooperate to a a point, but there's a point where we have to obey God rather than you. And so, so they, Daniel steps out and he draws a line here. It, it very well may be because food sacrificed to idols is what they were being encouraged to eat. It may be because it defies the dietary laws in the Old Testament that Jews were expected to keep. And they said, we can't do that. We're not, we're not going to that point. And this takes discernment, doesn't it? You know, it's very interesting to me that it seems they just, they, they were willing to, to be educated and read the literature and learn the language and, and understand the culture well. 
But they also had discernment to say, but that's too far. And Daniel steps out, and he says, that's too far. We're not going to do that. But then listen to this fascinating, fascinating interaction he has with the man charged with training these young men. Look what he says. He, he goes to the, the, the man in charge of this, the eunuch. But Daniel resolved he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs, to allow him not to defile himself. I find that approach very interesting. He, he doesn't get all angry and, and, and ticked off and, and carry a sign that says God hates meat eaters or anything like that. He's, he's interested in gaining the favor of the man charged with making sure Daniel's healthy. He, he seems sympathetic to this guy's situation. Listen. It's, it's fascinating. Verse 10, the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king was signed your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. And Daniel doesn't say, well, I don't care about your head. I care about my integrity. Now, he cares about his integrity, but he also seems to care about this guy and what his concerns are. Then Daniel says, to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he's confident that God will provide what they need to survive by obeying him and trusting him. This is trust in God. I hope you realize that. And a miracle happens. He listens to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days in verse 14. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. He went along with it. He said, wow, they're, they're not withering away to nothing. They're actually more healthy than the others who are eating the king's diet. Now, I just need a pause here. I don't know. Have, has anybody of you heard of, there are books called the Daniel Diet and the Daniel Fast and all these things. There's a book called Eating How Jesus Ate. As if that's the purpose of this. By the way, people do these Daniel diets to lose weight. These guys got fatter. Right? So I'm not sure where people get these marketing ideas. We live in a weird country. You know that? Uh, so let's, let's not go in a marketing direction with things. Let, let's go in a Godward direction with things. And so verse 17, listen, as for these, as for the four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature. There's the third God gave them in here. See, God is sovereign. God is in charge. He's in control of all this. And he gives them skill. They're actually among the very best in understanding all the literature and wisdom of this culture. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. He's even got supernatural insights God's giving him. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians. 
and the enchanters that were in the kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Is this an amazing story? You see, what we've got is a, a culture that foundationally is completely different than Israel. It, it's a polytheistic culture. In other words, they believe in lots of gods. But here in this culture, they, they stay true to their belief that there's just one God. And they continue to say, as we're hearing in the, in the videos, you're my king, my king now and forever. That's what it's about. And you've got this temporary human ruler who's powerful on a human level, but he's not the eternal king of kings. But as they're, they're going to the radio in the video, God seems absent. They're not getting direct revelation from him. There have been periods in the history of God's people where that's been the case. As we saw this morning, this is because of the judgment of God that they're in exile and this apparent silence is taking place. It's not always because it's discipline, but sometimes God feels very distant, even absent. And you wonder where he is, especially when things are going badly in your life. Even when you're being faithful, it would have been so easy for them to say, I think God quit on us. We're not hearing from him. We're, we're in this foreign land. And so they're asking, where is God? And in the midst of persecution, there's, there's several options we can take, as we said this morning. And, and we need to realize that isolation is not the solution. Separation's not the solution. Uh, rebellion's not the solution. But faithfulness is. So, so there, there are several points I, I want to make from our story, and then we'll be done. One, we need to live with an exile orientation. Number two, we need to be Bible-saturated blessings in whatever culture God has us. Three, we need to be obedient influencers. Four, we need to fear God. And five, we need to live with holy freedom. And we need to resolve to live these ways. Daniel, verse 8, resolved. He determined. He set his mind on this. He set his heart on this. He was committed to this. He was devoted to this. You will not stand up to temptation if you try to prepare for the temptation when it comes. It's got to be ahead of time. And so we live with an exile orientation. And this applies to Christians today, not just Jews who were in Babylon, but Christians today. We are exiles. We're sojourners. We're aliens, foreigners in a foreign land in this world. The Bible says it over and over again. And we've got to recognize this is our identity. Listen to Hebrews 13, 14. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that's to come. When the king returns, Jesus, and establishes his kingdom once for all, that will be our home. That will be our permanent home. We've got a foretaste of it now, a powerful one, because the king came the first time, but he's coming again. And so we depend on him now and wait for his return, and we live our lives waiting for the king to bring his kingdom once and for all. But we don't have a lasting city here. And so that means we're to live in the world, but not of the world. That's what Jesus said. Listen to what he says. And by the way, I, I, I want to say this every time we meet. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not the heroes of this story. Jesus is. Let's not get it twisted at all. Daniel is a great example. 
But he needed the Messiah to come too. That's what he's waiting for. That's what the people of God are always waiting for, the Messiah to come. Jesus is the true hero. And listen to what he says in John 17. Speaking of his disciples, I've given them your word, and the word, uh, uh, your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world. Just as I'm not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil ones. See? So we're in this fallen world. We're in this terribly broken world. We're in this world where there's this, this tide of rebellion against God, of, of self-absorption at the heart of every human being until God liberates us from that. And so we depend on him to keep us in the world, but not of the world. He says, I don't want you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one while they're in it. They're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world, Jesus says. So how do we do this? We desperately need biblical discernment. Now, we don't need it to know whether or not we should um, be sexually immoral or rob banks or uh, beat people up randomly, right? That, that doesn't take much discernment biblically to know those things aren't what we should do. But man, in a culture where we're constantly being bombarded with anti-God ways that aren't along the, the lines of his teaching, we've got to know the difference between what is true and what is a lie, what is righteous and what is unrighteous, what's honoring to God and what isn't. And Jesus tells us how we do that. He goes on in verse 17 of John 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. How does Daniel know where to draw the line? How do you know where to draw the line when you're in a culture, but you need to know when you've gone over a line? Jesus says, sanctify them by your word. Your word is truth. They keep returning to this in the videos, don't they? They say, I, I want this to mark me. I, I want to be transformed by this word. The, the Bible, we need to be Bible-saturated blessings to our culture. We're sent into the world, but unless the word sanctifies us, makes us holy in our thinking and our behavior, we will never be faithful blessings in the way God calls us to. So we need to be Bible-saturated blessings. And look how Jesus ends this passage. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. Jesus says, I've set myself apart to be the representation in my obedience and in my perfect sacrificial death so that they can be who they were created to be. Jesus is the hero of this story, not Daniel and his friends. So we're Bible-saturated blessings. I love that line in that video tonight. Someday he'll call us home, and I want to see the pages of this book all over my life. I want to reflect what this Bible teaches, what the Word of God teaches. So we're blessings to our communities with our presence and with the way we love people. You know, I told you there's exilic literature in the Bible that focuses on this period as well as Daniel, like Esther and Ezekiel and some Psalms. Well, there were false prophets telling the people that they should pray and fight against the culture, that they should oppose the culture, that they should, they should uh, be rebels in the culture. And Jeremiah comes along 
the true prophet of God, and listen to what he says in, in response to that. He says in Jeremiah 29, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So, so Jeremiah is saying, no, I know these false prophets are saying hate the city, pray against the city, oppose the city. Listen to what Jeremiah says. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce and seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you have welfare. Isn't that interesting? Be a blessing. Be a blessing wherever God has you. Even if it's in a hostile culture, completely opposed to God, that wants to force you into its mold, don't live in disobedience. Don't get forced into its mold, but be salt and light. Be a blessing. Did you hear that? When we bought our house in La Mirada, it had been a foreclosure, and no one had lived there for a couple of years. And everything in the yards, in the backyard and front yard, died. Everything. It looked, it looked like a desert, and we actually live in a desert, technically, in Southern California. Uh, but, but there was nothing there. But then my wife in the back, she went to work. Donna, she's, she's back there. She went to work. She's a gardener. You know, God's a gardener. He planted a garden. Eden, right? And Donna's godly in that way. She's a gardener too. And she started cultivating beauty in our front yard and our backyard. And if you saw our yard, it's beautiful. Like right now, these, these uh, roses are blooming. And she transformed that yard, front yard. It's not big, but it's beautiful because Donna got to work making it beautiful. How many times have we won the La Mirada Spring Beautification Award, Donna? We lost count a long time ago because Donna went to work making it beautiful. That's what she did. Our neighbor, yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah, Donna. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You know what? Our neighbors love what Donna's done to our yard. And she's made our house beautiful, too, because we want to be good neighbors. We want to be respectful neighbors. We want them to thank God we're in that neighborhood. And the way we respect people and love people and serve people and care for people and pray for people, pray for the good. We don't ultimately do it because the welfare of the city ends up blessing us. But it does, even though that's not our ultimate motive. And so we recognize that we seek to be blessings to our, our, our community, our culture we live in. But we do it as obedient influencers. We do it seeking to be used by God wherever he places us. And we want to be obedient influencers. And, and that means we have an influence. I think it's the funniest thing that people call themselves influencers. It's like I talked to a young lady not long ago. I said, so what do you want to do? You know, she said, I want to be an influencer. Oh, that's interesting. Now, what she means is have a like, here's how you put on makeup sort of thing on the internet, I guess, or getting up with jewelry or whatever it is. But, but you know, that's an interesting term. We all should say that, right? When people say, what do you want to do? We should say, I want to be an influencer. Now, they're going to think that means Instagram or something, but we're talking about the kingdom of God. I want to be an influencer for the kingdom of God. I want to be an influencer for the glory of the name of Christ. 
I want to be a, a, a blessing to people because I want them to see the goodness of God. And so we seek to live differently. And we draw lines. We, we don't just go with the flow. We draw lines as obedient influencers. When we're asked or influenced in ways that require unfaithfulness to God and commands of God get violated if we follow the way of the world, we resolve like Daniel to live in obedient involvement. We don't withdraw. We're involved, but obediently. And people will think you're nuts sometimes. You know, Don and I were committed to... Uh, sexual purity when we were married. And we went to a state university. I, I barely had any, I didn't have any Christian friends that was on the football team with me or that I hung out with very much. And, and when we told them we were getting married right after college, they were like, what are you doing? Why are you getting married so young? Why get? And then they'd go, oh, right. Oh. Yeah, you guys don't get to do the stuff we do, now do you, until you get married. Oh, I understand why you're getting married young, they'd say, you know. And because they lived completely dead. And I can't tell you how anticlimactic it was when I'd go to my friend's weddings and I'd say, so where are you guys going to live? And he'd look at me weird and say, where we've always been living. That's anticlimactic, isn't it? That's not very fun. That's not very interesting. Your, your wedding has a little party, and then you just go back where you've been living. That's one way we're going to be weird. You, you want to talk about a weirdo, somebody who doesn't think you have sex until you get married? In this culture? Now, that's going to set you apart. And, and so what else will set you apart? A whole lot of things. We, we need to be willing to draw the line as polite, respectful blessings but as people who walk in obedience to God. Listen to Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you as brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I love the physicality of that. Present your bodies, not just your souls, not just your minds, your bodies. Everything about you. Your hands, your feet, your sexual organs, your mind, your, your mouth, your, your, everything about you, physically, spiritually, emotionally, relationally, everything, your sense of humor, the money God gives you, all your intellect, all of it belongs to him. I love that line in the video. Our bellies don't belong to us. You know, the Bible actually talks about people whose belly is their God. In other words, their appetites, not just food. But whatever I feel like at the moment becomes my God. You know, we are disciplined people and obedient people. Uh, Paul goes on in Romans 2 and says, Present your bodies to God as a living sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I love that. You know, I love the enthusiasm of this group. I, the way you guys dive into wreck, dive into worship here, it's been so encouraging to see your enthusiasm. You know, people think about your generation as so apathetic and disengaged and just scrolling on your phones all the time. Not this group. You guys are bringing life to what you're doing here. It's beautiful to see. It's encouraging to an old man. I love it. I'm serious. You want to know something? 
that's a way of being countercultural. When people think apathy is cool and you decide God doesn't think apathy is cool, he thinks enthusiasm is cool, especially for the things of God, I'm going in that direction, right? I love that about you guys. It's been so encouraging to me to see how enthusiastic, which literally means full of life, you are about this. You know, God deserves more enthusiasm than anything else in your life. And so let's get after it and serve him in that way. Our bellies don't belong to us, and nothing does. And so we need a four, cultivate a fear of God. This is a, a hard concept for a lot of people to get. But, but you know, they're say, they keep saying, look, I, I, I want to be pleasing to the people in the culture, but ultimately I want to be pleasing to God. And when there's a conflict, I'm going to say yes to God and no to the culture. That's what I'm going to do. And that, that's the model we have here for us. But the way you do that is cultivating a healthy fear of God. She says in the video, I'm afraid too of the king showing up and not recognizing me. In other words, I don't even look like him anymore. I don't look like he created me to be. And so we cultivate a healthy fear of God. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Isn't it amazing how often we pray for wisdom? A prerequisite, the Bible says, of wisdom is fearing God, which means a holy reverencing that he gives us for who he is and what his word says where we want nothing more than to please him with our faithfulness, and we want nothing less than to disobey him and grieve him. And so we cultivate a fear of the Lord. Holy fear is something that is a primary motive for how we live. Listen to 2 Corinthians 7.1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, making holiness perfect in the fear of God. Why do you obey God? Because you've done calculations and you figure it's going to work to your advantage if you do. No, we need to obey God because we fear God, because he's God and we're not. Bottom line. And then we obey and we express faith in obedience and we get understanding very often after we follow him and his ways. And so we live obedient lives in the fear of the Lord. This is... A, primary motive. What reason do you need to fear God? And, and fear of the Lord is what you have for a, a good father, not an abusive father, not a mean or harsh father, but a good one, right? You know, it used to mean something when, you know, you know what mothers would regularly say to their kids when they were out of control? Wait till your, wait till your father gets home. And the kids are like, oh, we, do we really need to go there, mom? Right? They'd say, wait till your father gets home. And, because that used to mean something. And I think God created fathers to teach us something about the fear of the Lord. Good ones. Good fathers. You know, a lot of kids now say, well, so your father gets home. And he say, well, he's not coming home. Right? That's not funny. That's tragic. That's tragic when fathers don't come home. Right? And, and sometimes they say, yeah, dad will come home and just watch TV. What does that mean? But a fear of the Lord is something I think good fathers are supposed to teach. Is anybody tracking with me on this? I, I, it, it's, it's an important, it's, you don't mess with dad, in other words. You don't mess with mom either, right? I'm not saying mom doesn't discipline. I'm not saying mom's tough, not, not tough. But, but there's something a father should bring. You know, the Bible makes a distinction 
between the way mothers and fathers love. It doesn't mean there's not overlap. But we need to fear God. It's amazing how, how we trivialize God, how we bring him down to our level. We talk smack about him. We come to him with our agenda about he, how he better be and how he better run my life if he's going to get my worship. Instead of starting off with the fact that he's God and he's the creator. And wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. We've done a lot of hiking and backpacking and mountain climbing and stuff. So I've read how you handle wildlife when you meet it on the trail. And you'll, you might need this advice here. Because there are mountain lions around here. There are bear around here. There aren't grizzly around here anymore. But I remember reading in a book one time about what to do when you encounter wildlife. And on this page is what you do if you encounter a grizzly bear. And on this page is what you do if you encounter a mountain lion. And I read the mountain lion one. And do you know what you do if you encounter a mountain lion on a trail? You make yourself big. You try to intimidate it. Try to scare it away because you just may. And then I remember reading, and if that doesn't work and the mountain lion charges, you know what you're supposed to do? Fight it. You're not going to be able to run away from it, and you stand a chance of beating, beat me, beating a mountain. Not a real good chance, but you stand a chance. And people have fought off mountain lions. But listen. Listen. Listen, guys. If you see a grizzly, you know what you do? You don't try to intimidate it. You won't. You turn. You move off the trail. You don't establish eye contact. You say, the forest belongs to you, Mr. Grizzly Bear. And then I remember reading, if that doesn't work and the bear charges, do you know what you're supposed to do? Drop to the ground in the fetal position to minimize the trauma. That's what it said. <laughs> wow. All right, this is not, guys, stop having conversations every time I say, stay here, stay here, stay here. You can talk later. We're, we're just here for a few more minutes. Stay here. I'm losing, I, I, like herding cats. Stay here. <laughs> yes? Um, that, that's a good illustration of the fear of the Lord and a bad one. Because it's a good one because you don't mess with God. You don't fright a grizzly bear. And when people say, you know, I'm, I'm afraid, I'm too afraid of God. I said, no, you can't be too afraid of God. I'm running away from God because I fear him. No, if you had right fear of the Lord, you'd know it's not even an option to run. And, and so, so it's a bad illustration because when you run to God, you don't get mauled. You get loved. You get embraced. You get forgiven. When you run to him, he's, he's strong and powerful and needs to be rightly feared, but he's good. And he's compassionate. Last thing we need to do is run light. We need to run light with holy freedom. I want you to know holy freedom. Sin wears you out. Sin never satisfies you. Sin never keeps its promises. I've been sinning for 59 years, and sin has not kept its promise once to me. Ever. It always stands up and mocks you after you believe its lies. And so we need to draw lines. We need to, as Hebrew says, throw off hindrances and sin that easily entangles, that takes away your spiritual edge. You know, there, there are some things that are just flat out sinful. There are some things that are hindrances. They don't help you run better. They don't help you run more effectively. 
And so we've got to discern not just things that are sinful, but things that are a waste of time, things that aren't going to help you run better. There's nothing wrong with wearing a big puffer with a hood and long down to the knees unless you want to run the 100 meters, and you better take that off, right? Now you see it as a hindrance. And there are some things that are hindrances we need to get rid of. And by the way, asking, well, what's wrong with this? Where's the line is the wrong question. It's the wrong thing to be asking. You know, if some dude came to me and said, uh, I want to date one of your daughters, and I'm wondering when I do, uh, how far is too far? How do you think a dad's going to hear that question? Is homeboy getting a date? No, no, right? So what we need to realize, what we need to realize is that's the wrong question. You need to ask questions like, how can I date in a way where God will be glorified in this relationship and this woman or this man we're dating will be more like Jesus because we spend time together? See, that's the question to ask. What's the way to date to have relationships where people are blessed and help to see who Jesus is and made more like him? And so we got to draw lines. And we need to guard our thoughts. And we need to walk in faithfulness. And so... We're going to be tested every day. These guys are tested in Babylon. And Daniel wins the test. He passes the test with flying colors. And we've got to be Bible-saturated people. And, you know, when you gather in here to worship, realize that you are learning. You're being conformed to the image of Christ. The Spirit's taking more territory in your heart. You know, I have failed the test so many times. You know, it doesn't look like meat sacrifice to idols that I'm eating or Babylonian customs, but it's, it's things in my heart very often that my culture will even encourage me to follow. Like, follow your heart is what you hear in every Disney movie, right? And, and so that can be deadly advice when your heart's leading you in the wrong direction. You know, I, I'm, I can be very impatient, and that can easily lead to anger. And when I became a dad... When we adopted our first kid 15 years ago, I, it, it became such a daily test for me to be patient, to have perspective, to be kind, to not do what the Bible says, exasperate my children to anger. I don't want to do that. And I remember one time years ago, we were packing to get ready to come up here, and packing and going on trips can really stress me out. And I'm packing, trying to get everything done, and my, my kids are bickering. Fighting and bickering and going after each other. And it was just so frustrating to me. And I just laid down the law. I said, this needs to stop right now. Stop right now. It wasn't. 90 seconds later, they're at each other again. And I lost it. I'm sure all the neighbors heard me yell at my kids. The pastor with the very nice yard. <laughs> and, and, you know, garages, which is where we were, can just project sound out into the neighborhood quite effectively. But I, I just lost it. And my daughter, she got out of the car and she said, I'm not going to Hume Lake. She's 10 years old. She goes in her room and I, she climbs up on her top bunk and I hear her on her top bunk. We don't have a big house, so I could hear her all the way across the house saying, you lost your self-control. You lost your self-control. That was sinful anger, Daddy. <laughs> and then I hear, self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. 
she was all in my grill, just bringing it from across the house. Now, I'm having this internal wrestling saying, do I go and apologize? Because she's absolutely right. And here's what I'm thinking. If I apologize, it'll make her think she's right about everything. And she's not. And I don't want to give her that, right? But I had to go in and say, I'm sorry, honey. You're right. You're right. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. I was sinfully angry. I was impatient. And now I think I need to go to almost every neighbor and ask for forgiveness, too, for disturbing their afternoon. I failed that test, and we can fail tests over and over again. When God gives us an opportunity to speak well of Jesus, to point somebody to the king of kings that we serve, we can, you know what we can do? You know what I'll do? I'll, I'll adapt the way I talk to how I think somebody thinks. Right? So if somebody says, hey, why do you guys go up to Hume Lake all the time? I want to say, because we love to see God's awesome creation because it shows us how awesome he is and because he's working up there in the lives of young people and it's incredible to see him taking people out of darkness and bringing them in the light. And sometimes I'll just say, oh, we, we love the mountains. Because I know that person will be fine with that. Oh, yeah, me too. It's amazing how we can do that. Hey, hey, why'd you, why'd you come out to Biola? What, well, I want to say, oh, God opened doors, and he's blessed us so much there, and, and he's working in amazing ways, and we love Jesus, and, and that's what this whole life and ministry is all about. That's what I want to say. And I'll say, oh, job opportunity. My friends don't do that when they go on and on about karma or horoscopes or how great the construction workers I used to work with talked about how great strip clubs were and finding a woman to... Yeah, they're evangelistic about it. They're bold about it. And finding women in bars and how great that was. They were not the least bit timid in proclaiming how good these behaviors were that they were about. The world can be bold and we can be timid. And I remember one time I was... I was... Uh, in a diner, I went in a diner like five in the morning with a friend, and the hostess looks at me and she goes, did you do something wrong? And I said, no, why? And she said, people don't smile like that at 5 a.m. unless they did something wrong. And I said, no, I didn't do anything wrong. And here's what through my head. I, I want to say, ma'am, I'm a Christian, and this is a smile of a man who's been forgiven. You know what I said? <laughs> That's what I said. When we, and she comes over, and the waitress comes over, and she says, watch this one. He smiles a lot. On the way out, same lady. I'm paying the bill. And she goes, you're still smiling. Clearly, God is wanting me to talk to her about Jesus. And, and she says, you're still smiling. And I want to say, yeah, ma'am, because I've been forgiven because of Jesus. And, and that's why I smile like this, because it's true. You know what I said? <laughs> That's it. And I walked out. I don't know what lie I was believing. I don't know how, what was making me conform. That same day, same day, I'm at a salad bar. I guess I was eating a lot, out a lot that day. I'm at a salad bar, and this lady looks over, and she goes, oh, you're too healthy. Look at all those greens. And I said, well, you got a nice salad there, too. And she said, well, I went to the doctor, and my cholesterol's high, so now I'm trying to be righteous and holy and pure. And here's what went through my mind. Ma'am. You're going to need more than greens for those things. You're going to need Jesus to be righteous and holy and pure. And you know what I said? <sighs> Same thing. 
Same thing. It was a bad day for me. Bad day. I remember one time I, I was coming home from a funeral on a Saturday in a suit. And the guy says, dressed up on a Saturday. Dressed up on a Saturday. And I said, yeah. I just got back from a funeral of a really good man. And the kid, he's like 17. He, he says, well, guess that's what life's all about, being good. And I wanted to say, well, actually, the reason he was a good man was not because he was just moral, but because he followed the only one who can ever make us good before God, and that's Jesus. And I just said, yep. Now, I'm not going to beat myself up about this, and I want to tell you this because preachers are still working through this stuff. We're all in process, but we serve a God who's worth it. We serve a God who loves us to death and gives us eternal life and abundant life now. He's worth it. We don't want to blend in for the wrong reasons. We want to stand out for the right reasons, and the best reason ever is our King now and forever. Help us, Lord, to live for you now and forever. Amen.